0: I'm glad you're with us. If this is your first Sunday, thanks for joining. We are marching through the Gospel of John. I know we're getting it confused because, like, we usually save resurrection conversations till Easter Sunday, and we're going to be in them before Easter Sunday. But that's okay. Like, we'll—I think—we'll handle it. I think you guys will be okay. Uh, but we are marching through John. We'll have the first resurrected account, like the tomb's empty, in a few weeks, but a couple of weeks, but. But we haven't seen Jesus yet. So we're going to see him on Easter. So we kind of timed it so at least we get to see Jesus resurrected on Easter. That's the plan. Um, But hopefully you're encountering a resurrected Lord every day as it is. Now, if you have not been with us for a while, then you don't know that I forget, you know, circa 2021 or something. I don't know when it was. We were going through the book of Exodus. You remember our Exodus series? We went really slowly through the first 20 chapters and then really quickly through the next 20 chapters because a big chunk of the back half of Exodus is the giving of the law. And so we did law sermon, we did the golden calf, we did the tabernacle, we did, you know, so it was like 20 to get us to chapter 20 and then 3 to get us to chapter 40 is about what it took. But if you're unfamiliar with the Exodus story or you are familiar with it but you're afraid because maybe some details have been forgotten, I want to just give you a few of them. The nation of Israel was in slavery. That was something that they they had gone down into Egypt. You remember Joseph and his brothers and the family and they all get into Egypt, but then a king arises who doesn't know who Joseph is and things go awry, which is kind of every movie plot. Things go awry when a, a pharaoh or a king arose over Egypt who didn't know Joseph and put the Israelites under harsh labor. The Hebrews under harsh labor. And so they're in slavery, and God brings the plagues. We remember the plagues, like bump, like, bump, bum. bum, bum. And so all these things come on Egypt because Pharaoh would not let God's people go. Now, if you remember that final plague was the plague of the, you could call it the plague of the firstborn, where the firstborn in every household, firstborn male, dies. If you didn't have the blood on the doorposts, that gets remembered through the Passover. And so the Passover is this reminder of what God had done. And remember, as God's giving the instructions throughout the book of, uh, in the book of Exodus during this time, he's saying, like, prepare yourselves, but don't pack up. You're going to have to get out really quickly. And, and he gives all these instructions on how you will remember the Passover And there's something with the lamb that's spoken of, even in the instructions on the Passover. But fundamentally, if there's blood on the doorpost, the Lord sees it and passes over your house. And if there's no blood on the doorpost, then the Lord sees that and strikes down the firstborn. Of course, if you've been with us any amount of time or you're familiar at all with the gospel story, then you know as it was then, so it is here that those who have the blood of Christ, the Lord passes over and are not punished. And those who do not have the blood of Christ, which we're using as a, uh, as kind of a metaphor for his covering, his, his sacrifice, the recognition of what he has done. For those who have that, they are free. And those who do not, they will die. But there's always the ability to trust, to turn, As long as life is still here, as long as breath is still in our lungs, we can turn and we can believe. Well, John has given us this little theme, starting in the very beginning of his gospel, about one aspect of who Jesus is and what that expression would be. So John has been giving us little hints all the way, really early, spoken by John the Baptist about the kind of person Jesus is, for the world. And that idea of the lamb is going to come in handy as we get into today's passage. The lamb and the life giver that we see. Now, if you're familiar with creedal language, you know that we say something like that Jesus suffered under Pontius Pilate and he was crucified, dead, and buried. And that just follows the order of the Gospels, that he was crucified. We spent two weeks going through his crucifixion. He is dead. And this week's passage looks uniquely at the fact that he is dead. And then next week looks at him buried, crucified, dead, and buried. Now, as we look at these things, what we want to see are some unique things. What are some unique expressions of Christ toward us that we see in this moment on the cross with the breath now out of his lungs, having willingly, willfully, with his own, by his own authority, given up his spirit. Notice if you read with us last week, it doesn't say, and his spirit was taken from him. It says he gave it up which is what we've heard Jesus would do the entire time. Nobody is going to take my life from me. I'm going to do what I said I would do. I'm going to do what I came to do. Well, Jesus is the Passover lamb is a theme in the New Testament. It's a theme that we use every week we take communion. And it's a part of what we remember is Jesus as that sacrificial lamb. So what we're going to see today is both Jesus as the Passover lamb and Jesus as that one who is pierced. Both of these fulfill Scripture. Now, in one sense, one is fulfilling in a more full idea what God had already spoken. In another sense, it's going to fulfill something that had been prophesied. So we're going to see the fuller revelation. You know, we talk about how sometimes prophecy has like this, it gets fulfilled here, or it gets kind of developed here. But then when you see Jesus, it gets expanded. What it meant got broader more significant. So he becomes the perfect Passover lamb. And then he also becomes the one who is pierced. So that's what we get to see here in this morning's passage. John chapter 19 verses 31 through 37. The first idea, Jesus is the Passover lamb. Verse 31. Look at it with me, that Jesus' bones were not broken. Now you've all heard this. If you grew up in church, you know the story and you go, oh yeah, yeah, let's move on. No, let's not move on. Let's stay right here for a second. It's one thing to fulfill Scripture in your life, and that's another thing to fulfill it even in your death. It like, it like, 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 you're still fulfilling Scripture in how you died, and in that you are dead, and in the way that you are dead. Jesus' bones were not broken by the soldiers. Now, you have to know that, that the Jewish people still wanted to honor Their law. And their law did not want to have any any Jewish person hanging on a cross in preparation for their feasting. And so they wanted to take the body down. We'll learn next week that Joseph of Arimathea actually plays a pretty significant role in securing the body of Jesus. But since it was the day of preparation, verse 31, and so that the bodies would not remain on the cross on the Sabbath, for the Sabbath was a high day, the Jews asked Pilate that their legs might be broken and that they might be taken away. So the soldiers came and broke the legs of the first and the other who had been crucified with him, but they came to Jesus and saw that he was already dead. And they did not break his legs. Now, the breaking of the legs is because, if you know the story, you've heard it before, you've heard these sermons, this might be the for some of you like the 30th time you've talked about on a Sunday, the breaking of the legs. But it's so that you can't support your body anymore. You break the legs of the ones on the cross, depending on how they were held up, their legs might have even been kind of bent underneath them. Not just, we often see standing, but like bent underneath them, And so you break the legs so that you can no longer support your body. And when you can no longer support your body, you can no longer breathe. And when you can no longer breathe, because you have to lift yourself up to even get a breath, because the Romans were experts at making death terrible. Terrible. So they knew, that the the Jews said, will you break their legs so they'll die? Almost like the, the mercy rule. Let's finish it because we have to prepare. The Sabbath is coming and we can't be tending to this before or during the Sabbath. So, in the ideas, break the legs, they'll die more quickly. But then you get to Jesus, and when they go to Jesus, he's already dead. Well, we had just actually read in the previous passage. It is finished, and he bowed his head, and he gave up his spirit. There might have been a thought that Jesus was still alive at this time. Maybe he was hanging on, and so they said, let's just go ahead and check it out. However, they didn't break his legs because he was already dead. Now, that seems rather like a mundane detail, doesn't it? Like That's kind of like, okay, cool, so his legs didn't need to be broken. That's great. Good for them. Good for him. If you're just reading the passage, you go, I don't really... So what? So his legs weren't broken. But you don't realize a theme that John has developed in a way that Jesus is fulfilling scripture even here. And if you actually look to verses 35 and 36, and we'll go back to Exodus where we were for a moment, you'll see this. But in verse 35 and 36, John is wanting you to know, I really, really, really saw it. Like like, like you can hear his even language. He who has borne witness, his testimony is true. And he knows that he is telling the truth. That you also may believe. Now, John, as he's just made this statement about what he has seen, if you remember, Jesus just said, Behold your son, behold your mother. And we were saying the disciple Jesus loved is probably John. And John is writing this. And he's saying, I need you to believe me. I have no reason to lie to you, I've seen it with my own eyes. And I want you to believe. Because he goes, legs weren't even broken? His legs weren't even broken? His side was pierced. We'll get to that in a moment. But in verse 36, he says, for these things took place that the scripture might be fulfilled. There are going to be two passages. We're going to look at the first one. Not one of his bones will be broken. Now, that's an, that's an interesting passage about, about the breaking of bones. You could say, I could count all my bones, I could count them all here, but one thing you need to know about the Passover lamb, the Passover lamb wouldn't have its bones broken. Exodus 12, 46. It shall be eaten in one house. These are instructions on the Passover. You shall not take any of the flesh outside, and you shall not break any of its bones. The Passover lamb was to be unblemished, unbroken. And we see in the Exodus, one image of how God was to save his people, how they were to recognize it, how they were to observe it, celebrate it, remember it. And then you see it more fully fulfilled in Jesus. So so we have now not just a, a lamb, but we have the son. And the son's bones are not broken. Not one of his bones would be broken. Christ, our Passover lamb, is the final fulfillment of that remembrance. You don't keep sacrificing lambs anymore. You don't keep going to God and having the sacrificial system. Why? Because the true and final lamb has been slain. How do we know... Christ is the Passover lamb. Well, well, Paul calls him that, for one, Christ our Passover lamb. But just go to John the Baptist. Remember John the Baptist? He has since been beheaded at this time. But John the Baptist says in chapter 1, I know that was like a year plus ago, so we're kind of like, man, John chapter 1, I don't remember that. But John 1.29, the next day he saw, that would be John the Baptist, saw Jesus coming toward him, and he said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. You might be familiar with Andrew Peterson's Behold the Lamb, are like, oh yeah, we listen to it every Christmas. Like it's it, it doesn't do anything if not for this fulfillment at his crucifixion, at his death. We can, we can sing it, we can look at John 129, we can love it, but the fulfillment is in every single way Christ. Became for us that Passover lamb. The full and once and for all sacrifice for the sins of the world. It's one of the reasons John's like, you hear me on this. I've seen it, and my testimony is true. I have no reason to lie to you. Not one of his bones had been broken. People have found the remains of crucified bodies, and the legs, lo and behold, are broken. It would not be common to find unbroken legs of crucified people. And even in this, Christ is more fully expressing what the true Passover lamb is. John wants you to believe. My testimony is true. I'm bearing witness about this so that you may believe. But what do we believe? What are we believing? Like, is it just, well, yeah, sure. I believe that Christ's legs weren't broken. Like, is that what we're believing? That just his legs weren't broken? Like, you don't have to be a Christian to believe that. You can believe that and still go, yeah, I still don't think he's God. Like, I, I just think his legs weren't broken. So is, is, is John just bearing witness so that we would believe some details about the crucifixion? That we would believe some details about how Christ died, what happened to his body? It's not just about the details, right? Like, it's not, it's not just, again, like we've talked about like forensically getting the facts straight. It's Christ, the Passover lamb. It's what the fulfillment of those details mean for you and for me and for us. How Christ is the perfect and full and total expression of all that we need for our sins to be forgiven. That we would trust in the fully sufficient sacrifice of Christ to cover over our sins that's what we might believe, not just details about how he died or when he died or that he was between two thieves, though so all of these things fulfill Scripture. All of these little moments, the ones that were seemed like active fulfillment and the ones that seemed like passive fulfillment. And what I mean by that is active fulfillment is Jesus said, I thirst, and then they brought him sour wine, and that fulfilled Scripture. And the passive fulfillment of we don't need to break his legs. And that too fulfills scripture. That we would trust in him. There are different groups of us here today. Not just family groups, not just people who know each other and people who don't, or people who are new and people who are older, or people who've been around and people who haven't. Walk with the Lord no weeks, walk with the Lord 700 weeks. Like, I know all those groups are here. But there's also, we could group ourselves by just how difficult it is at times to believe that Jesus' sacrifice is all sufficient. That those of us in this room who, who doubt that things could really be forgiven, those of us who, who wonder, not in the details, we can just by faith go, yeah, I believe that. And still when it comes to what does it mean that Christ is our Passover lamb, we'd still go, gosh, but. It is so hard to believe that that sacrifice covered these sins. I think that there are those who fear this morning. You, you might be one of them. Those of us who fear, who, who wonder. In secret and in quiet moments, we wonder if we are truly forgiven. You may have heard a preacher preach it this way before. I've seen the video and like, it's not this like, it doesn't, it's not viral. Maybe it is, everything's viral now. But we wonder sometimes like, how fully did you have to believe with the blood on the doorpost in order for it to be done, right? Like, like so if you put the blood on the doorpost and you were a little cautious about how effective it would be, and you were kind of like, gosh, I mean, like, it seems weird, that I would do this and it would work. And then one person, on the like your neighbor down the road in Exodus, they go, oh no, this is totally, this is what we have to do. God has spoken it. We must do it. And then you're the neighbor who's like, it just seems odd that we would put blood on the doorpost here, here, and here, and that that would be all that it took. And we might have this way of viewing life where it's like, well, if you're, if you're here or you're here, which one did God save? And the answer is both. Both. The one who, by a teeny tiny amount of faith, did what was asked, and the one with a huge amount of faith who did what was asked, both were covered over because it is not the intensity of the believer that causes the blood to be effective. It is the declaration of God and the sacrifice of the Lamb. And very often we flip the order and we think our intensity about our belief in something is the thing that keeps it going. You could never be so intense that you could out-intensify God's love for you. You You could never hold something so strongly and believe it so fully and passionately and declare it so loudly that somehow God goes, finally, like I was getting tired of holding on. It won't happen. For those of us who fear or wonder or maybe even doubt that we are truly forgiven. Christ is still our Passover lamb. The blood is sufficient for those who have strong and firm belief and those who have weak belief. This is one of the reasons I love the letter Jude. Jude, who also could be the half-brother of Jesus, this New Testament epistle. Just one chapter. I love the one chapters because you can feel really like you've accomplished a lot when you do your Bible reading. Like, man, I crushed it. I read a whole book of the Bible today. And, like, you don't tell your friends that it's just one chapter, right? Like, our reading plan had us in Obadiah this week. You can be like, I read Obadiah this week. And, like, it's a chapter. Don't tell your friends that. Just say you read Obadiah. Like, yeah, I, just, I even read the minor prophets. Like, like, like you don't? Um, you can have that conversation. But at the end, Jude has this line, and he just says it, he says it like this in the way that I'd memorize it. Have mercy on those who doubt. Have mercy on those who doubt. Like, we so often view doubt as like this, get out of here, you don't belong in the church. Like, how could you doubt that? How could you doubt that? As if critiquing the person is the right way to go about that. Like, like, okay, well, you're going to make me feel bad for doubting? Like, that's going to make me feel better? Like, if you somehow, like, critique my doubt, I'm going to go, oh, yeah, clearly I was stupid. Like, I should have never done that in the first place. Like, it, it just, it just makes you feel worse. That's why I love the line, have mercy on those who doubt. Care about those who doubt, right? And what do you do in those moments is you continue to point them to the sufficiency of the sacrifice of the lamb and not the sufficiency of the intensity of the belief. That's very hard for us. It's hard for us in an earning culture where what we do determines what we make. And how well we do it determines and whether or not we're promoted and our effectiveness or our efficiency in it determines how we are viewed is that we can so often apply that same thinking to the lamb. And go, well, if I just just get real serious about it, will that then... Will that then cover it. It's Christ covering over you, not your covering over Christ. For those who fear, know that Jesus became your Passover lamb. But there are also those who are arrogant. None of us probably in this room, but like they're probably your friends, your family, other people. <clears throat> Pride is a sin that doesn't exist at Genesis, I'm sure of it. All right, guys. Yeah, yeah, no, amen. Yeah, amen, I think. I don't even know. Is that a joke? Um, Yes. For those who might think that, yes, they have done some bad things, but they aren't really that bad. We we all do this. Our kids do this. Adults do this. Like, well, yeah, sure, I've done some bad stuff, but it's not as bad as them, like, have you seen Gary over here? Like, like, yeah, yeah, he knows. Uh like we we sat together last week and just compared righteousness. It was great. For those who are arrogant, who have such confidence in in who they are, and who are so sure of themselves. So sure, right? So on the one hand, the person is doubting the intensity of the belief. On the other hand, the person has no doubt. They're so sure of who they are. They're so sure in how forgiven they are. They're so sure in their own smug self-righteousness that they're like, they're glad that Jesus covered over their sin, but also like they were almost all the way there. Like all they needed was just kind of the nudge, just the push, right? The assist, like, like you're going across the goal line, you're making a goal line stand, and, and the, the rule is you can be pushed from behind, but you can't be pulled Right? So it's like, well, I just got the push from Jesus to score the touchdown. That's all I needed. I like, got already driven 99 yards down the field. That's all, that's all it was. Angels didn't even touch me to pull me in there. Like, it's no big deal. We didn't break any rules. We have that feeling, too. So one side would go, man, I just don't know if I'm good enough. And then the other side would go, man, I'm just glad I'm so good. <clears throat> right? Like, I'm just, like, like I'm, I'm glad for that. Like, the Passover lamb is sufficient for you, too, you smug jerk. Like, like all of us. All of us still get the same sacrifice. All of us still get the same full life with God the Father. And while he he works with one to grow their faith and encourage them and strengthen them, he also works with one to to humble them and teach them that their self-sufficiency is going to get them nowhere. And so both groups of people need help to trust in what Christ has done. For those who recognize that they have sin, but they're not sure what the next step is. The next step is always first and foremost turn to Jesus. Like we can like, like like we get worried. Like, well, but once I do that, I'll probably need to also like confess this to somebody or or admit that I'd done this or deal with the consequences of it. Like, don't let what happens later or what might even happen later, stop you from doing what you know to do next, which is turn to Christ and trust in him. But we worry about the future steps and wonder then if we just go, well, you know, I'm not sure what will happen later. And that almost it keeps us from enjoying forgiveness even now. Because, well, I don't want you to know that this happened. I don't want, I don't want this to get out. I don't want to confess this. I'm just embarrassed by this. I, it, it's ugly. It's hideous. And, and no, no. If we don't know, we've said this before, if we don't know the next thing to do, we still always know the next thing to do, We just go to the Lord with it. Go to the Lord with it. <laughs> We're like, what do, I, what do I do with this? How do I handle this? How do I, how do I live with this? All, all because Scripture was fulfilled that said his legs weren't broken, right? That, that in his legs not being broken, he fulfills what we need as the lamb for us. That that, that he is fulfilling scripture, that he can count all his bones, that that the Passover lamb that John has presented Jesus as is there for us. And he's not just, even though just is a terrible word to use, just that. There's more scripture that is fulfilled. If you look at, at verse 34, you see this. They didn't break his legs, but one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear, and at once there came out blood and water. Now this one's bizarre. Blood and water. I I, I think what is happening here, and you're going to have to you know, go with me on this just little bit of... of Historical reconstruction, but it seems like what the soldiers are doing with those bodies on the cross is is poking them to see if there's any movement. And it's like like well they don't look alive, but let's just check. Right it, now, if you think about it, like we kind of do that, right? Like, like is it is that is that animal really dead? Like like well let's, let's find a way to let's find a way to see if there's a reaction. And so the soldiers are actually, cons- like, like that's the, it, it sounds so, right, right? It doesn't sound odd, but that's what they're doing. Is like, well, we want to be sure that we need to break the legs, but as they pierce the side, and there's clearly no movement, blood and water flow out. Jesus, the one pierced. Now, blood and water is an interesting one. We're going to go through just different ideas on what it means for there to be blood and water. From like, at the very least, it's this, and it could even mean as much as this. I wish I could get into John's mind and ask him. Because I'm not sure why this illustration is given. But there's a range, okay? The first thing that we see as he even cites it is when he says, and again another scripture says, they will look on him whom they have pierced. Like, that's the, that's the fulfillment, right? So, so they, his legs aren't broken, his body's pierced, it fulfills the scripture that his legs aren't broken, and it says they will look on him whom they have pierced. Well, that comes out of Zechariah, which I, I doubt many of us are, like, experts in Zechariah. It's Probably not, like, our, 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 like, number one book that we just pull off the shelf when we're bored. But there's a lot going on at the end of Zechariah, both about the Messiah and the return like the, the the coming again. And so there's there's this kind of messianic picture about the crucifixion and the return and this full and future restoration. All of that is going on in the back end of Zechariah, both in chapter twelve and in chapter thirteen. And these themes get they're pretty cool to look at. First, the quote that John uses is from a part of Zechariah twelve ten. But if you look at the whole thing, you see this. And I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and pleas for mercy, so that when they look at me on him whom they have pierced, all we get is John quoting that part. And they look at me on him whom they have pierced. They shall mourn for him as one mourns for an only child and weep bitterly over him as one weeps for a firstborn. So there's this idea that when they look, it seems like this is the Lord, when they look at God, there's a recognition that there's been a piercing, an injuring of some way of God, and it will bring about mourning. Some kind of mourning, some kind of, of, of guilt about what's gone on. But all John does is give us the look on him whom they have pierced. That's all he's quoting as it fulfills this. And so then you go into the, the, the back end of Zechariah and you go, oh, what's, what are all these things in here for, John? Like, like, what was in his mind? Because again, he just pulls out, bam, the one they have pierced. Well, I'll give you a few. And let's start in the simplest form. In the simplest form, John was testifying to us to you, to me, and to any of his readers, that Jesus actually died. That, that seems like, yeah, I totally get that. But you need to realize that there was already a, a heresy floating around, even maybe as early as John was there, called docetism. Now, docetism comes from this idea that, that Jesus was God, but, but this idea of, of, of uh, docetism is, but he appeared. He just appeared like a man, almost like an apparition. So yes, he was God, but... God couldn't be man. In fact, almost all heresies revolve around Jesus. Trying to understand fully God, fully man, what he do, how do he live? And so there's like the, then there's like the, well, there's kind of two people. Like he kind of zippered up his suit, and there was God in there, and that's the phrase we use like God and a bod. Like, no, no, one person. He's not two people. He's not, he's not skin suit God. He's fully God and fully man. But docetism tried to get at this idea that, well, Jesus only appeared like a man. And that's how he maintained fully being God. Now, it may not seem like John would need to address that, but if that is something that is kind of creeping into churches in different ways, this view that he didn't really have a body, it just looked like he had a body, then maybe you can hear the intensity of his testimony. Right, I'm not going to lie to you. Blood and water came out so you know he had a body. He didn't just appear to have a body. Like you didn't, you didn't move your hand through him like he was an apparition. He was actually there and his body actually existed. And when his side was pierced, fluid, blood and water came out at a base level. John is letting us know. Jesus, fully God, fully man, actually died for us didn't appear like man, didn't just sort of have an apparition, wasn't two kind of competing identities. He was fully God and fully man, which our little minds will never comprehend. And so you can hear him in that. He, blood and water came out. I'm telling you the look on him who was pierced. But that's an interesting sign because th- that language actually seems to come more toward the second coming than this moment right here. Now, remember, Jesus is resurrected in three days, right? Three days later, everybody found out, as we know the song. And so Jesus was resurrected, raised to life. Thomas had doubts. He goes, feel my side, feel my hands. You'll know that this is me, Tom. And then he's, and then he's ascended. So who's looking on him? Who's looking on him, the one they pierce? Well, we'll do a few things. there could be a sign associated with cleansing. Why would I say that? Well, if you look at Zechariah 12.10, I will pour out, I will pour out on the house of David. So there's this idea of pouring and this idea of the Spirit coming. And we've seen themes already about streams of living water and what is coming out. And so it seems like maybe an odd connection to make. But in Zechariah, there is this, this idea of God pouring out something on people. Pour out in the house of David, in the inhabitants of Jerusalem, a spirit of grace, please for mercy. So they'll look on me whom they have pierced. Well, look also, though, just the next chapter, Zechariah, On that day, there shall be a fountain opened from the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem to cleanse them from sin and uncleanness. Now that's an odd one. And so blood and water pour out, come out, flow out from Jesus' side. And John is quoting Zechariah. And right there in Zechariah 12 and in Zechariah 13 are these statements about how life will flow. Life will flow from a fountain opened up for the house of David. At a base level, yes, Jesus actually died. But if you just go down the spectrum, Jesus is also giving life. Jesus is also bringing life. And we've seen the themes throughout John, the streams of living water, times that will will be refreshing. That's later in Acts, the times of refreshing. There are all these themes about water and life and flowing and bubbling. If anybody thirsts, and what you see in in this statement, both the fulfillment of Scripture and this idea that Jesus is that one who gives life. The reason I think that looking on one who is pierced, who are those people? Well, who's looking at him? Are you looking at him? Am I looking at him? Are future people looking at him? I think there are multiple ways to look at They will look on him who pierced. Like We just hear that and go, yeah, we're just looking at Jesus. But that's also kind of a sign of of judgment. Because if you know, the soldiers pierced him. The soldier pierced the side. So are they looking at him in that moment or are they looking at some future moment? Well, look at Revelation chapter 1, verse 7. I was like, well, like, like the world is not going to end because we're quoting Revelation, I promise. Like, like, look, Revelation 1, 7. Behold, he is coming in the clouds and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. And all the tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. Even so, amen. So, so now do you realize that, that the looking, yes, there's a looking that maybe even the soldiers are doing. There's a looking to the sacrifice of Jesus that we need, but there's also this future in his return, looking on the one whom they have pierced. That in this very statement, we are getting really two ideas Idea number one I would share with you, similar to what we just talked about with Jesus as the pastor of a lamb, is is look on him for life. Look to him for life. This goes very clearly in the same way that in Jesus, Jesus with Nicodemus in John chapter 3. And he says, just as Moses raised the serpent in the desert, and we went back into, I believe, the book of Numbers, and we see the serpents come in. God is sick of the sin of the Israelites as they're marching and as they're wandering, and he just doesn't want it anymore. And so he sends these snakes into the valleys to bite them. And Moses pleads, of course, and God goes, if you build this snake and they look at it, the nation looks at it. Anybody who looks at it won't die. Anybody who looks won't die. And Jesus uses that in John chapter 3 in talking to Nicodemus to explain anybody who looks to him won't die. But it doesn't just mean like, hey, look at this piece of paper. Right? Like, that didn't save any of you, I promise. Like, like it didn't, that did nothing. So We look at things all the time, and we don't behold them. We don't consider them. We don't enjoy them. We don't delight in them. We don't believe on them for our life. So in a very real sense, it's just look to Jesus as that lamb, as that life giver. Our sins did pierce him. Our wrongs did harm him. It brought about this moment. But if we look to him... His life comes to us. Jesus is unequivocal. If you try to save your life, you'll lose it. And if you lose your life for his sake, you'll save it. That only in dying is their life. That's the way he has set it up for us. That if we die in him, we rise with him. And that is far better than trying to just create our own self-made resurrection. And so we look. What does it mean to look? I would say like this, to to gaze, to stare, to, you could even say, behold or enjoy what Christ has done for you. To realize the significance of what it is. That is, if you are in Christ. If you're not, what does it mean to look? I would say this can also, the look on him and they pierce, is also a statement of judgment. It results in wailing. That's what we see in Zechariah. That's what we see in Revelation. That there's this wailing as you look at the one whom they have pierced. And what might that be? But those who have harmed or who realize their sins but have not turned. As we recall, and the Apostle Paul says this in Philippians, when he talks about everybody will confess. Everybody will confess Jesus. Everybody will look to him. Some look to him for their life, and some look to him and have death. Because they didn't turn, they didn't receive, they didn't believe on Christ as the Lamb, they did not receive him as that life giver fully God, fully man, doing for us what we could never do for ourselves. So I would say, as as you consider your own life, your own deeds, your own sin, your own story, whatever you are, whatever brought you here to this moment, right now, look to him. Turn to him. Receive from him full pardon. And if you have done that, I would say stay there. Stay there because the Christian life is so much of us reminding ourselves of what is true. And I, I, I still, when we sing, come thou found, every time, prone to wander. Like, it's kind of like, well, I just want to go this way. And it's like, the Lord's like, no, 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 Hans. Like, you got to go back over here. I'm like, I don't know, God. I think if you just go over, like, this looks really good. It's like, no, right over here. You're like, I, I'm, are you sure? Because I'm telling you, and this is our life for, like, the next however many years God gives us is him graciously restoring us because so often we wander from what keeps us on the straight and narrow. What keeps us delighting, what keeps us enjoying is we always want to go back to something as if that thing is better. Scripture might use language or we've heard stories like a dog returning to its vomit. Like we're like, yes, this is life, right? Vomit covering our faces. And we're like, this is really where it's at. And you're like, no, no, it is not. Even if it feels more familiar, Life is with the Lamb. Everything that we need is given by Him in those moments. Everything we could want, fully, truly, actually want, is given by Him. Receive Him. Trust in Him as the all sufficient Lamb who takes away the sin of the world. Find him, look to him as the life giver that we need, who pours out on his people, his spirit, who gives them what they need, who restores and revives them. And it took his death, that to be a reality for.